welcome to the Rock Music Alliance interview sessions. I am your host, Cole Coleman. On the show today, you know his bass playing from the Atomic Punks and California, but he's also the tour manager for Steel Panther. When we come back, we're speaking with Joe Lester. Attention guitar players, join the Thimble Slide Revolution and free your slide finger. With its patented shape, you can slide and fret while wearing the Thimble Slide. Visit thimbleslide.com. That's thimbleslide.com. Claudio Pesavento from Mahogany Rush and Chris Squire Band is hanging out with us. Claudio, how you doing? Hola, amigos. I'm doing good. That's good to hear, man. It's good to hear. Now, Joe... You have a lot of irons in the fire. You know, tour manager of Steel Panther, bassist for the Atomic Punks, freelance photographer, and sales at Ultimate Ears. Wow, it's a lot going on. Uh, let's start with beginnings. Uh, I understand you're from Kodiak, Alaska. Were you born and raised there? Uh, I was, well, technically, if, if you look at the birth certificate, I was born in Anchorage, but it's because uh, it was cheaper for them to have me in the native hospital in Anchorage than it was to have me in the hospital in Kodiak. So my mom was phoned up to Anchorage and... Uh, but essentially, yes, I was, I'm from Kodiak. So Now, Kodiak is a town on the island of Kodiak. So did, did you feel isolated there? Uh, you know what? I was so young, I, I, didn't, I didn't really know any difference. It was just, you know, when you're born into that and that's where you live, it's just where you live, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, so going back, it's, 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 a, it's a great change up from uh, being in a place like Los Angeles to go back to a, an island with 12,000 people and and uh, nobody around. And it's great getting in places where uh, no one can contact me and there's no cell service and, you know, just fishing or taking photos for days on end. So, yeah, the, the photographs I've seen of it, it's it's really, really pretty place. Yeah. Amazing yeah. place. So uh, what got you into music and why bass guitar? Um, for whatever reason, I was always into music, probably because my dad played guitar. He had his own own rock bands that played Beatles and you know, Rolling Stone covers and stuff like that. Even though we were on a small place like Kodiak, they they still had a high school band together, and I think they might have played the high school dances and stuff like that. So there's um, there's picture of of him playing guitar for me. And uh, when I was about ten years old, my mom got a trumpet from a friend, and um, and wanted me to to see if I liked playing in the uh, elementary school band. So I started playing trumpet at ten, and then the uh, the music teacher moved me over to baritone horn, which is uh, kind of like a trombone, but with valves, a small version of looking of a tuba, but uh, kind of in between the two instruments. And um, I played that all through high school and uh, just love, love, always loved music. And then uh, one of my best friends in the world showed me the first Aussie record. And when that rumbling noise comes in and slides into the beginning, I don't know. I was like, that's it. I, I got to play guitar. I don't know what this is. I got to learn about it. It was so amazing. I was blown away. So I, I uh, got an acoustic guitar for probably for Christmas or something like that. Started trying to learn songs on acoustic, uh, nylon string acoustic, which is kind of funny. Uh, I think Breaking the Law was like one of the first songs I learned on the on the nylon acoustic. And then um, eventually moved over to um, rock guitar, playing rhythm guitar in a band. I had no idea how to play solos. And we had a two guitar band in high school. And the other, the other guy, the other guitar player, Chris Setter, was like the Eddie Van Halen of our school. It was like he could do things that nobody could believe and all this stuff. So so uh, I was fortunate to play in a band with him and just play rhythm. And then at one point, the they our bass guitar player had gone off to college and I was back home and, and um, they 
it was kind of like, well, we don't have a bass guitar player. You're the rhythm guitar player. Why don't you play bass? So I started playing bass. Quite a change. I mean, really quite a change from, from establishing yourself as a guitar player and then switching over to bass. Uh, but, but you enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily say I was an est- establishing myself as a guitar player. I just was sitting down and by ears learning songs on the guitar and wanting to be a rock star. You know, essentially the dream of uh, the Sunset Strip. And to me, if you played the whiskey or the troubadour, you were a millionaire and you drove a Ferrari and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But we all know that that's not true. So. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, while you were learning bass, uh, were there any any influences on you? Musical influences? Yeah, I, I went from um, fortunately when I started playing bass and really, really got it. I kind of dabbled around with it in our in our high school band. Then um when I came down to California full time, I kind of went back to guitar thinking, you know, I'm in California. I really want to play guitar. That's what I love. And uh, I, ran, I, I met a guy in my, on my uh, apartment complex. His name's Darren Householder. And he was a shrapnel guitar player, GIT guy, Berkeley guy. Um, and uh, he lived in my complex and we talked and I took a couple guitar lessons from him and told him the thing about how I played bass. And he was like, you know what? He's like, your rhythm playing is pretty good, but you've got a lot of work to do on leads. There's a million guys in town that can play lead guitar and you're so far behind everybody. You know, at this stage, I was 20, 20, 20, 1920. He said, you should really think about playing bass guitar. There's going to be a lot more opportunities, a lot more work. Everyone always needs a great bass player. And so um, he kind of got me to, to go back to the bass again. And at that same time that I did that, I hooked up with some guys that were doing classic rock covers. So instead of playing, you know, uh, bass guitar, like, you know, Poison or, or some of the more basic uh, hard rock bands that were a little easier to learn on the bass, um, I kind of dove headfirst into some of the classic rock stuff, like the Doobie Brothers. Tyron Porter is one of my all-time favorite bass players. Of course, John Paul Jones, McCartney, um, a lot of the stuff from the classic rock bands where the bass was actually doing things and was a part of the song rather than just writing one note. So that that made a made a huge, huge difference in my in in learning that instrument and learning how it sits in songs rather than just, oh, well, the guitar player is playing an F sharp. I'm just going to play an F sharp and just chug along with it. And that's, you know, that that works for that genre. But fortunately for me, I really dove into it hard with the stuff that had a little bit more meaning to it. Yeah, it's interesting. The the rock and, and music of the earlier eras, you know, um, the, the bass playing, they, they often, they seem to have more, uh, more musical training or at least in, in many ways or more musical, uh, you know, so like pl- playing bass back then, it always amazed me how, you know, how they can fit a melodic aspect of the bass into the music or how just one note, you know, like choosing to play the fifth of the chord, you know, uh, can, can change the whole feel of, of what's going on. Well, it can totally change everything. Yeah, so it's a really powerful instrument, you know, that that's what it ends up being, yeah. Hey, when you were, you know, back up in Kodiak and, and starting to play in bands, uh, were you performing in Kodiak or did you did you have to get... I, I left Kodiak when I was five. Oh, okay. I moved, I moved, we moved up to Anchorage, so we moved to the big city. Um, I lived in Anchorage till I was almost 10 years old and I moved to Seattle. So, so the end of my junior high, uh, elementary, junior high, and all of high school were, was all in Seattle. So that's, that's where we had our high school rock band and all that kind of stuff. So, so oh, cool. essentially the most influential years of everything for my music and stuff was growing up in Seattle. Now, did you, did you see the beginnings of the Seattle sound? Um, a little bit. I saw Alice in Chains before they were the Alice in Chains that we know when they, when they still looked like, like poison and it wasn't the guys in the band. It was only Lane. It was just Lane. He, he was with, he was in a five piece band. I think they were a five piece. 
um, with other guys. And they had bleach blonde hair. They looked like poison. It kind of played, I don't know if it was a similar kind of music. I don't really remember the music that well. But um, at the same time, he was working with this guy's in another band called Diamond Lie. He left Alice in Chains, took the name, changed the name to Diamond Lie to Alice in Chains. And that's the guys that we know, Jerry Cantrell and those guys. So um, I did see some of the beginnings of that. So there was a, a thriving music scene up there, but when I was there, it wasn't the the grunge scene that we know. That was kind of starting on the side, and I wasn't really in that scene. Those were kind of uh, the older brothers of my friends, so guys that were two, three, four years ahead of our our group of friends. We were all just straight metalheads. There was there was no, you know, nobody I knew listened to Soundgarden or. Uh, yeah. uh, Mother Love Bone, or I didn't even know about those bands until I was in L.A., but I knew about Allison Chains, and and I actually had seen them. The first time I saw them, they, they were opening for the Bullet Boys at a theater in Seattle, and um, I remembered the name, and and I didn't know anything about the band. They had a song on the, on the radio in Seattle called Queen of the Rodeo, which never made one of their records. It's like a B-side, but that was the song that everybody kind of knew. And it was really, it was a fun, quirky song. So when they came out, Alice in Chains, I'm like, wow, these aren't the Alice in Chains that I saw before. They don't have the bleach blonde hair and the flashy clothes and all this stuff. And it's funny, I actually have a couple pictures from the show that I saw where Lane has bleach blonde hair and they're on stage and, and stuff like that. So it's it's uh, cra- crazy Seattle music history, but I wasn't really that much of a part of it, really. It, it's so cool that you were there and, and, and got to see some of that early time. I wonder what in the world change those guys i don't know because we had we had the guitar players and we had the 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 bands trying to be um you know similar to the sunset strip bands you know there was a a good friend of ours their name of their band was red platinum there was culprit there was uh uh god uh, slaughterhouse five um the whole but there was a scene up there they mistrust of uh, different bands and stuff and and that was the scene and they would play anywhere from a bowling alley to a VFW hall to I saw when I saw Allison Chains, it was at a lecture hall at the university of Washington. They rented out the lecture hall, huge lecture hall with a, you know, stadium seats in it. And Allison Chains and four or five other bands are playing down the floor where the, probably the professor walked back and forth on the stage. It was, it was quite, a, never, never saw a concert in a setting like that before. It was pretty interesting, but you know, up there, it's like you set up and you play where you can. There is no, there's not a lot of whiskeys and places where people can go that are underage to go see the bands. Um, at least back then, in the late '80s, there were. So, right. the the drug scene and the the anger could be the reason that they created. Yeah, it could be. It could be. It could be just pure. Everyone finally figured out that the anger and the and the bad weather and everything else just led itself to a, a newer sound. You know. I met the lane. The you know the. The singer? Yeah. I was good friends with Jerry Cantrell. I met Jerry and at the first tour, there was the Men in the Box. Uh-huh. We're touring with Van, Van Halen in Montreal. And I was hanging with, with Jerry all week. And then he introduced me. The next time he came into town, he introduced me to to, to Lane. Like we're talking in backstage, you know. And he looked at my velvet jacket and he said, Oh, rich boy. Love <laughs> <laughs> a jacket. That's funny. So, Joe, uh, what inspired you to come to Los Angeles? Why come here? Oh, purely to play music. and be, that was, I mean, that was it. That, that was my dream. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a full-time musician playing in a band. Um, whether I sold millions of records or not, my goal was music full-time. No other job. That was my number one goal. So... And uh, I noticed you uh, studied at UCLA. Uh, what were you studying there? 
I took some summer classes there and I actually was in the uh, music business class that, um, oh gosh, uh, now that's on the tip of my, uh, Barry Squire had a music um, music business class there for a long time. Okay, right. Well, he did it every semester, just in the summer semester, but I took his music business class and a couple other side classes just to fulfill some extra credits to, to truck. I wasn't, I wasn't, a, when I was going to college, I wasn't a, a 18 credit guy. I was like a nine to 11. So I would try and take summer classes to kind of make sure that my college wasn't going to take me 10 years to graduate. So that's cool. Now, Barry Squire, uh, he's he's uh, with Musicians Institute now, right? Uh, I'm not sure. But Barry has always been the guy around town that's kind of placed musicians in different bands. So if you're kind right. of on musicians, call list, there was a big audition and he thought you were kind of fit the bill for that. He would send you an email or call you up and be like, hey, audition. You know, we're putting together a band for, you know, Katy Perry or, or whoever, whoever it is. And so. Yeah, as best I know, he's still doing that. Yeah. So, so what did you what did you study at Pepperdine? Uh, Pepperdine. I went there my first year out of uh, out of high school, and I basically didn't study anything. <laughs> I stayed up all night, had dreams of playing uh, music. I played guitar, and uh, I basically it was a a study in uh, how to screw off twenty four thousand dollars of uh, tuition. Oh man. <laughs> I thought I, th- I thought maybe you went there for business, you know, like a no, business I, degree. I honestly, I went there because it was a great school and I was going to be in Southern California, whether it was Pepperdine or UCLA or one of the other schools in Southern California. And um, I was fortunate enough to get into them all because I was smart in high school. But once I got to college, all the smarts went out the window and it was it was party time. So I got myself down here <laughs> almost to get myself in the game, you know that was a, a roundabout way of doing it rather than, than uh, not going to school and moving to Hollywood and, and immersing myself in that scene. It was, <laughs> I was kind of working the outside perimeters to finally, till I finally dove in. So uh, did you find a band to perform with at that time? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't really start playing with anyone until I had moved back here. And like I said, uh, met Darren Householder and then started playing bass again, started playing with a, a classic rock trio, acoustic trio. And from that, uh, I put a cover band together, me and Darren, and um, we had uh, our, a friend of ours named Dave Mintz on drums. Eventually, we got Ray Luzier on drums, who is now in Corn, famous, one of the best drummers in the world. And uh, our singer's name was Ron. He's not really in the music business at all. So we had a we had a band, and we would play, you know, covers from from hard rock covers to Van Halen to Pearl Jam to whatever was going on at that time in the in the late '80s, early '90s. And um, out of that, and meeting Darren is how the Atomic Punks came up because Darren knew Bart Walsh, the original Atomic Punks guitar player. And when the, when the punks were looking for a bass player, they had just started the band. They'd only played a couple shows and their bass player had got the Donna summer gig. So he was moving out of town. So they put the word out. Darren said, Hey, you're a big Michael Anthony guy. You should go see my friend's Van Halen band. And um, so I went down to FM station and, and saw them one night. Uh, I had I knew who Ralph was. Uh, Ralph Sainz, the singer on Atomic Punks at the time. Um, from his original, seeing his original bands around town and just thinking that he was the biggest rock star that nobody knew. And I, like, I had to be in a band with this guy. And so when he came out with the atomic punks, I was just like, Oh my God, there's that guy. Like I have to get in this band. I, it was almost like a weird, you know, divine intervention, putting me in the place where, where I was supposed to be or something like that. So it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, how, you know, you meet someone and they introduce you to somebody and it just, it just though, like the universe takes you down the path you're supposed to go if you're willing to follow it. You know, it is fantastic when that kind of a thing happens. And and yeah, some, sometimes you really feel 
like you, like you say, the energy of it is is such that you feel like this is supposed to happen. This is my destiny. Yeah. 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 And it crazy. even the first time that I saw Ralph singing, and I just, we were just talking about this the other day. I saw him at the Troubadour and uh, I had gone to see a friend's band that was opening up for them. I didn't know anything about him or his band or anything. So after my friend's band was done playing, we were standing at the bar with our backs to the stage while they were doing the changeover. And the band started playing and, and we're talking with the bar, still with our backs to the stage. And I'm like, wow, this band sounds pretty good. And I turn around and there's Ralph. And I'm just like, who is this guy? I mean, and how is he not the biggest rock star in the world? I mean, he's got everything. He's got the voice, he's got the look, he's just, it moves, he's got everything. It's like, I, if I ever put a band together, I'm stealing this guy. That's my guy. And I end up in a band with him and best friends with him for 27 years. You know, it's crazy. That's fantastic. Hey, uh, let's pause right here, guys, and do a little business for the Rock Music Alliance. We'll be right back. It's time that rock music has its own awards, the RMA Awards, its own scholarships, charity events, and more. And only you can make it happen by joining the Rock Music Alliance and voting in the RMA Awards. You can join as either a musician, an industry professional, or if you just love rock music, you can join as a patron of rock. Everyone can join, and everyone gets to vote. Join the Rock Music Alliance. Go to rockmusicalliance.com. That's rockmusicalliance.com. This is Johnson Pesta from The Cult. Join the Rock Music Alliance. Yeah! And we're back speaking with Joe Lester. Uh, are the Atomic Punks mainly a Los Angeles band, or do they tour? No, yeah, we travel. We travel all over, mainly the United States. Um, some stuff we'll do out of the country. We were supposed to go to Japan a couple years ago, and uh, thing fell through with the promoter. But there, it was. It was on flights. Flights were ready to go. The posters were up in Japan. I had people saying, "Hey, we saw your poster in Tokyo," and and it fell through. So that was going to be pretty cool to go over there and, and do that. And maybe we'll get to do it someday. Um, but for right now, in the meantime, mainly we're just all over the U.S. Almost every weekend we're playing somewhere else. We do about around 70, 75 shows a year at this point. Is it mainly, uh, you know, nightclub type of environment? Um, anywhere from a 400 seater to a maybe 1500 seat, 2000 seat place. That's kind of our, our range. Terrific. Hey, hey Claudio, have, have you seen the Atomic Punks? Yeah, when I first moved to LA in 2000, no, 1999, actually, I went to the Viper Room and I saw them. And I found out that also the, the singer was in this band called Metal Metal School, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I saw the two bands at Viper Room and it was amazing. I mean, like I listened to Eddie Van Halen and, and uh, what's his name? <laughs> Yeah, back then, 99, that was probably Brian Young on guitar, too. Yeah, I think. Brian, yeah, Brian yep. Young. Yep. He was playing with you guys, too. Yep. Yeah. That was a great, that's a great band, man. It, it still is a great tribute. I mean, I thanks, think it's man, a tribute. Yeah, so how, how, long, how long have you been the bass player for Atomic Punks? I've been the bass player since show number three in 1994. Wow, okay. All right, man. Seven years we've been playing Van Allen songs. Sure. I had a couple, couple spots where... Um, I was out doing my original band and I wasn't really playing with them because we were out on the road on tour and stuff. But it's I've been back and forth and in and out, mostly in, then out for the 27 years. So Now, have the guys from Van Halen come to see you and did you get a chance to talk with them? Uh, Michael Anthony's played with us three different times and he's I've talked with him many times. He's absolutely just the, he's exactly what you think he is. The nicest guy. Um, he's fun to talk to, have drinks with, he'll tell stories and he's, he's just a, just a great vibe, great guy. 
Um, met Dave the the night my band, my original band, California, sure I'm boring. Uh, the night we got signed, me and the drummer um, had gone to Crazy Girls before our show at the Viper Room. We were doing, we were in the disco band at the Viper Room called Booty Quake that played every 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 Friday night. <laughs> so we had signed our record contracts and we were going to go to um, the show at the Viper Room, but it was really we were like, hey, let's pop into Crazy Girls and have a have a drink and celebrate before we head to the Viper Room. And Roth just happened to be there, so we sent him over a drink. And he told the waitress to tell the guys to come over and say hi. So we go over and say hi. And we end up sitting there with him for 45 minutes while he, you know, told us stories and congratulated us on signing our record deal and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was a pretty amazing day. But those are the only two guys I've met. Never met Eddie, never met Alex. Um, but the Dave and Michael couldn't have been any nicer, you know. That's that's really great to hear. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, too bad, uh, too bad uh, David Lee Roth, you know, never guested with you guys, you know. Yeah, that'd have been cool. That'd have been cool if you would have played. It'd have been cool if he just would have would have straight up done the uh, Eat Him and Smile reunion a couple of years ago at the at the uh, at the bowling at um, what you call it Lucky Strike when they were going to do that. That would have been just yeah, to see that would have been amazing. It was crowded. Claudio, were you there for that? Huh? Were you at the Lucky Strike when they were going to do the Eat Him and Smile the show because it was too many people? The fire. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Briefly coming out from from the back door. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that's that's what I remember too. Is that they? Um, I guess they promoted it maybe a little too well, and and so many people showed up to see that that they ended up having to cancel it. So we went from out of town. From, from what I heard, that there were people that had flown in from out of town and waited. The line went around the block all day until they started letting people in. And and yeah, that that would have been just absolutely amazing. But I I stayed away. I I knew it was going to be crazy, and that's not the easiest place to see. Uh, people perform. So I was just kind of like, oh, you know, I'll watch the YouTube videos, but I was really excited about it. Cause that was one of the, that's one of the still today, one of the best concerts I ever saw that first eat Him and smile tour was just yeah. absolutely knock your socks off. It was incredible. So how did you become the tour manager for steel Panther? Well, obviously uh, there's atomic punks connections with, with, uh, Michael Starr and Satchel, Ralph and Russ, they used to be in Atomic Punks with me. So I always had that connection with those guys. Uh, the bass player, Travis, and the drummer, Darren, um, we all performed together in the Boogie Nights disco cover bands and stuff. So I'd known those guys also for 20 years and, and been great friends with those guys. So it was almost like with the Steel Panther stuff, they're almost, you know, family. None of those guys, all those guys for so long. And um, I had, had uh, gotten a camera for Christmas and I had always done photography, but the, the camera gear that I got for Christmas was like, you know what, I'm going to, this was what, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And I just was going to kind of finally get serious about shooting photos and learn about the camera and learn how to shoot in manual and learn the different settings and ability to do things on the fly. And rather than just a point and shoot with the automatic uh, button on it, you know? So I started taking my camera to their shows every Monday night at the house of blues and shooting every Monday night. And that led to um, the House of Blues like my photos. And I became the the house photographer of the House of Blues for the last few years that it was open before it closed down on Sunset Strip. Um, so fast forward through that, Panthers out on tour uh, doing their two-week annual Christmas tour that they do for the radio stations in the Midwest. And um, it was uh, like maybe December 9th or 10th. We were done with Atomic Punk shows for the rest of the year. Um, my, my schedule was pretty much wide open from the that first end of the first week in December, all the way the rest of the rest of the year. So, uh, I 
called up Ralph and said, hey, you guys got your room on the tour bus? I'll use a free ticket and fly out and meet up with your shoot the last five shows of the tour. He's like, yeah, we got room. Come on, you know, get out here. So the next day I was on a flight to St. Louis, met up with the tour, shot the last five shows, hung out with those guys. And at one point on there, on that tour, something was mentioned about uh, tour managing. And I was, you know, I never was never really interested in being on the business side or being uh, on the crew side or any of that stuff. And um, I kind of, you know, blew it off or whatever. Uh, but then we did another one again. They were going to uh, to Germany for a couple festivals. And I had, I had so many miles um, on, a, on a plane. It was no big deal to just use. I wanted to use them up. So I'm like, guys, I want to come to Germany for the two shows. I'll get myself out there. Um, just get me an extra hotel room. And, you know, I'll ride on the bus with you guys and it'll be a blast. I'll document the, the, it was just two festivals. So it was only like, we were only there for like four days. So I did that and flew out there. And while we were out there on these festivals, the tour managing thing came up again. And I was like, you know, maybe some, someone's trying to tell me something and maybe I should investigate this. And uh, when we got back from those, those um, shows, I talked to their manager at that time about it and the band wanted me to do it. So we kind of put it in motion. And two months later I was doing my, I was doing the same Christmas tour that I had gone out and shot on a couple of years previously. I was tour managing that Christmas tour. So, I mean, a couple months later, boom, next thing you know, I'm tour managing those guys. And it led to uh, almost two years of whenever they did big bus tours or went overseas to Europe, I would go out and, and, and uh, be the tour manager. And, and then I started being the guitar tech as well for the, for the tour. Interesting. Now it's at a point where um, the drummer's their manager, uh, Darren's the manager. I, I do all the logistics. So I book all the buses and the tour and the <clears throat> hotels and airfare and all that. Darren books all the gigs, handles all the managerial duties. I handle all the logistics. And then if they go to Europe, we have another good friend of mine who was actually the singer in our high school heavy metal band. He's, he goes out and tour manages them in Europe. Hmm. So it's, it's crazy how things can go full circle all the way back to the, the singer in our high school heavy metal band. Well, it's also uh, interesting that you guys have kept it really all in house. It is, it is, and that's and that's and that formula has always been there because it was all like that with the Boogie Nights, pretty much the disco bands and stuff, and the Spasmatics. It was everything in house, no crew, no you just do it yourself. You walk in, you set up your stuff in fifteen minutes, you change into your outfit, and you play three sets of you know seventies disco covers or, or whatever it is. Same thing with Atomic Punks. We don't have crew. We don't have anybody set up our gear for us. We set it up ourselves. And that's really the only way to make money. If you start having these extra people and managers and publicists and, and the, the, the pie is getting split up so much, nobody makes any money, especially until you get up to a you know higher level where you're making you know, $10,000, $15,000 a show. That's, that's different. So, Right, right. Uh, Claudio, have you, have you seen Steel Panther? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 how I know Claudia. Or, well, I know him from Atomic Punks, but... The, the, I see all, all yeah. the incarnations of the... Well, incarnations, like it, the first the first uh, was with Ray, Ray Lucier playing yeah. drums. Yeah. He plays with the... What band play now? Which band he's playing he's, with? He's now? in Corn now. At that time, he was playing with David Lee Roth. Okay, yeah. He played yeah. with David Lee Roth, too. And then I saw him at... I mean, I saw they started in the Viper Room and then they moved to the Roxy. Yep. And then they moved to the Key Club. Yep. And they were doing all these videos every night, filming every show. Uh, you know what happened with that? Nothing happened, right? Nothing ever happened. I, I think they were in partnership with people with that footage. And oh, I think okay. the footage, I think one of their old, old managers had the footage and he 
was not going to turn it over to them. Yeah. So um, I then think I went was, to see them at the House of Blues like every Monday. Mm -hmm. I was there every Monday. I mean, I meet there with Felix, um, all these musicians that I know from from Canada, and yep. we go there and have fun. You know. Yeah, yeah. Mondays were that was an amazing, amazing time. I miss those days. Yeah, yeah, those were fun days. What else are you going to do on a Monday night? And that was that was the most fun night of the whole week, let alone it was a Monday night. Yeah, it, uh, it really was. At that moment in time, I was working for Music Connection magazine. And and we used to hear about it, of course, you know, so I, I knew it was going on. In fact, that, that's really the first I heard of it was I, I had heard that there was this band that performed every Monday at uh, the Roxy and, uh, you know, doing doing this show. So, uh, so you know, we sort of had our eye on it. Uh, I, I made it down to see the band when they were at the House of Blues. The best thing about the show is that you never knew it was going to happen, and you never knew who was going to show up. And it was all improv. It was nothing. None of it was staged. It just they just went with the flow, and that that was the the genius of the show. It was just that but, that whole feeling of is that they started to write their own songs. You know. Yeah. 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 And they started writing their own songs at a different yeah. level. You know. Yeah. Now, for, for people listening who may not know, uh, Steel Panther is a parody band whose satire is of melodic rock and glam metal bands. And having seen the show, you know, to me, what makes it work so well is that all the players are actually really good yeah, and really skilled. And, and so they can pull it off. I mean, they're poking fun at this stuff, but they're really pulling it off. And I remember watching the show going, wow, these guys are actually the real deal. You know, they're just poking fun. And uh, it's just amazing. So do you think... Then you add the acting and comedic element to it, which they're amazing yeah. at as well. So you have like the triple threat. They can play. They can play and sing. They sound amazing. Their songs are great. They they get into a character and they stay in that character. So for you, you're, you're not th thinking of them as the people that you know them. They're playing that character when they're on stage. Right, right. And then after that, they don't break the character. But then all the comedy is improv comedy, which is one of the hardest things to be good at as a comedian, as far as I know, is improv, you know, and they're masters at improv. Everything they do is just off the top of their head. Even if they pulled someone up out of the crowd and what went on with it, people would always say like, like, oh, they, they know that person or that was set up. I was like, no, it's all improv. They, yeah. they, just, they, they run with it and they go with it and, and they're so good. And that's part of the reason why they could do it every single Monday night and not have people get burned out was because all those elements were so fantastic. And, and, and all that together, it was one huge party. So, mm -hmm. When, when this when this COVID pandemic lifts, we we need them to, to be a monthly or a, a weekly spot again. Uh, <laughs> we need some some humor for a while. He's so busy touring <laughs> all over the place that that I don't know when we'll see him back here in California on a regular regular basis again. But um, you know they're already out touring. They're touring. Right, they played Phoenix last night, and mm -hmm. um, um, we did a couple shows a few weeks ago uh, in in Iowa and Kansas City. And um, so it's it's slowly starting to come up. They have stuff at the end of April into May too. So you're not playing with them too, man. Yeah, I filled in for a couple shows um, and and played with them. So if some if some if an emergency arises, I'm I'm there. I'm ready. Fortunately, fortunately, our Motley Crue band translates to uh, me putting on that costume for Steel Panther, and it works. So okay. otherwise, I don't know what I'd do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, Joe, as as we move forward in time, you know. Uh, uh, Steel Panthers, you know, comedy is all about the glam metal, you know, bands. Uh, do you think Steel Panthers satire will have to expand into modern metal styles? I don't. I don't think so. I, I you know, I don't. They 
every time you think that maybe it's going to slow down or, you know, how long are they going to be able to do this? They get more popular. So I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer to when, when the end is or when it'll slow down. And it's like Atomic Punks too. When they first started Atomic Punks, the drummer was like, you know, we'll probably do these couple shows and that'll be it. And it's 27 years, you know? Yeah. That's an incredible run. It's unbelievable. And and it wasn't planned or anything. It just, it just kind of happened and worked out that way. So hopefully for those guys, it'll, it'll be the same thing. It'll, it'll last as long as they want it to, you know? The Atomic Punks have been Van Halen longer than Van Halen. I've, I've probably played those songs more than Michael Anthony has. So that's kind of <laughs> scary. <laughs> Not only that, is that, that's the, the the Van Halen version that everybody loves because yeah you know those those days were the the real Van Halen to yeah. me yeah, yeah. so Joe uh, tell us about your photography uh, more about your photography is, is it uh, are you doing photography now and and is it for publications or is it more for events. Um, I, I've done a little bit over the years for publications, but I've never really, I never really wanted to shoot photos um, because someone was making me shoot photos type. So I don't do weddings, don't really do events. I'm an action guy. If it's not music or sports, it's I can shoot it, but it's just not really as interesting to me. Um, I did red carpets for a little while just because I wanted to learn it and I wanted to learn the trade and I wanted to get good on the fly with flash throwing a flash on my camera and, and popping up the settings and, and having the pictures come out great. Um, so I, I, I did do a few jobs here and there to learn different aspects of, of the trade. Um, but I'm essentially either live music or shooting sports. So right now with no live music for the last you know year, year and a half, I haven't shot any concerts or any music stuff. And um, I just started shooting sports again because I'm a, a the sports photographer at one of the local prominent high schools that's just right down the street here in Studio City. So I shoot all their high school sports going on my ninth year. And um, they're trying to cram three sports seasons into three months because they started everything so late. So everything that would have been September and, and October, you know, football and, and all those fall sports are going on right now. So it's it's. Um, I'm shooting yeah. two or three things a day. That's actually why we had to move the interview up because I have to go shoot here in about 45 minutes at the school. Um, but that that's the main thing right now. So it's 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 um, the band, you know, fortunately the way the schedule works out. And that's part of the reason why I have a lot of jobs too, because if one falls off, the others can cover for it. So um, right now the photography is hot. The, uh, the ultimate ears, in-ear monitor stuff is starting to pick up and the bands are pretty dead. So um, you did the Grammys. You provide the no no I, I that wasn't we didn't do the Grammys those were just the list of artists that I've worked with that had been nominated okay. for Grammys so all, of, all of those artists at some point have been in my office um, or uh, through emails with their managers set up their in ear orders so we were just kind of saying you know congratulations to some of the artists that use okay, our ears product so got it let's pause here for a few words from the RMA and when we come back we'll ask Joe about the band. California. Hey, I'm Cole Coleman, here to talk a little bit about the Rock Music Alliance. The Rock Music Alliance is an international organization of musicians, industry, and those of the public who are patrons of rock. Our main focus is to produce the RMA Awards for rock, metal, and prog music. 
and you can be a part of it all. When you join the Rock Music Alliance, you can send in music entries for yourself and your favorite established artists. And you get to vote in the RMA Awards. So join the Rock Music Alliance and be a part of it all. Don't wait. Be proactive. Join and vote. Go to rockmusicalliance.com. That's rockmusicalliance.com. This is Joe Lester from the Atomic Punks. You should join the Rock Music Alliance. So, uh, Joe, t- tell us about the band California. Um, California was born out of the the disco days when we were doing the disco bands. And I was I was in a, like I said, our disco band was called Booty Quake. And Satchel from Steel Panther was on guitar in Booty Quake. Um, so w- we were doing that band. We were the house band at the Viper Room on Friday nights. And we had our weekly circuit that we did. We went to Salt Lake on Saturdays. And we played Pasadena and Long Beach during the week. So it was a four or five day uh week cycle, similar to what Steel Panther ended up doing on Mondays, we were doing in different cities all over the country. And we just happened to be the house band at the Viper Room on Friday nights, every Friday night at midnight. And that was during like the Johnny Depp era. It was, it was amazing. Mid to late nineties. Just so happened that the singer and the drummer in that band had been working on uh, the singer's demo projects. And um, they handed the demo over to me. They wanted to put a band together and they handed the demo over to me and said, hey, you know, this isn't, they thought I was just a metalhead. The style of the music at that time, I, I liked, likened it to more like a Brian Adams style. And he has that kind of rough voice like Brian Adams, which I love. And so they handed me this tape and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I, next day I'm like, I'm in, whatever you guys want to do, I'm in, let's, let's do it. And uh, they knew a, another friend um, that they wanted to have on guitar. And um, we started writing songs, putting stuff together. And we ended up um, getting a demo on Tom Zutok's desk, who was the signed Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and Tesla and Enya and Yanni. And like, he was one of the biggest A&R guys back, back in the, uh, in the early, early and mid nineties. And uh, he flew out from New York and we did a showcase for him and he pretty much signed us on the spot. Um, so we, we got a record deal with Mercury records, uh, made our record. It came out in 2001 and, um, no one heard it. <laughs> we did one tour with Stevie Nicks. We we're out on the road with her doing arenas for a month, um, and outdoor summer, summer, uh, summer sheds in the, at the end of, uh, fall. It was right after September 11th. We were on the road with her for a month. And when we got back, uh, the label, we had ended up on trauma records. They had lost their funding. Um, the, the label broke apart. We broke up and that was kind of it until 2000, uh, gosh, I can't even remember the dates with COVID, uh, 2000, early two, 2019 or 2018, we discussed putting the band back together and we had a record that we were really proud of that was sitting there that nobody had really heard much of. And it was produced by Eric Valentine, who's one of the biggest producers in the business. Um, and it sounds amazing. And with, with kind of the country, country rock resurgence that's going on, we kind of felt like there was a spot for us. And uh, we put the band back together and started playing shows. And then we did, um, the last show we did was the Steel Panther record release party uh, at the end of 2019 for their last record, Heavy Metal Rules. And um, then COVID hit, you know, three months, three months later. So it's, uh, we kind of got, we kind of got in trouble with 9-11 and that kind of messed things up for us a little bit, even though we went and toured after that. And now we got in trouble with COVID and COVID kind of squashed it. It's kind of like, you know, what, what, what's the, 
Why is this band doomed? Like it'll never, it'll never get off the ground and go anywhere. So if anybody wants to hear uh, any of the songs, we have a few songs up on um, SoundCloud and on YouTube. We have a couple lyric videos up on YouTube. So if you search um, Cal- California, um, gosh, it's, that's, that's one problem with that name. It's hard to search and find, but uh, we use the hashtag California is a band or uh, one of the songs you could search is called uh, Big Grand, and that usually brings up our, our band page on YouTube if you search California and Big Grand. Now, well, are there any, any new recordings planned for California? There, what we have, the, the, through the years, we ended up getting a new guitar player when we, when we relaunched the band. Uh, our old guitar player, Steve, had passed away. So we grabbed uh, Jason Orm, who's been a friend, really, really great friend of the band. He also plays with Alanis Morissette and Sarah McLaughlin and many other people. Um, so he he is in California now. And uh, him and the our singer, John, had been writing for a few years. And they have a, a slate of demos that are just absolutely amazing. And um, to me, they're uh, even more of a step up from what we were doing back when we made, when we made our record. And um, I can't wait for this for the those demos. Either we make them into a full record recording, or those demos get re- released as a, a EP or something like that, or whatever. But there's some really great songs, and that was kind of some of the things that stoked the fire on putting the band back together too. Is that the demos that they had written were so good? It's like we've got to start playing this stuff live and get out there. There's a there's a spot for us, and everybody that hears us, as far as I know they really, really like the band. Like, wow, I didn't know about you guys. I love the band and the harmonies or three-part harmonies. And a lot of people will say like, you guys sound like the Eagles and like stuff like that, which is a huge, I mean, that's kind of what we're going for. So it's a huge compliment. That's, that's terrific. And, and you know, the, the sense of it that I get is that it, what's different about the COVID-19 pandemic shutdown over 9-11 is like, like 9-11 brought about a, a real, like a paradigm change in, in the way that everyone was, was thinking and feeling. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, I think it's more like we're on pause. So I, I, I think there's a really good chance that when this thing lifts, we're going to get right back to what we were doing. And uh, the feeling I get also is like people are going to be ready for, like I say, we need, we need comedy. We need, you know, good times, you know. Uh, so I, I think people are going to be receptive to hearing a band like California. And, and, and with music in general, I would hope that most of these bands use their time wisely and wrote a new record or wrote a whole bunch more songs. It's like the unfortunate part for us was that you can't really, in order to launch a new band, you have to be able to go out and play shows and support the music, which we obviously can't do right now. So like you said, we're just on a complete pause. I would love to have released the record and been pushing it, but it's just not the right time. You need to put everything you can behind it at the right time where you can can, can do a music launch and then all the Spotify's and the YouTube's and make videos and have the publicists out there pushing it and then go do live shows to support it as well, or, or go open up for bands like Blackberry Smoker and, or even Steel Panther for whatever reason we work opening up with Steel Panther and, and that's really fortunate. Um, so we just kind of have to wait. And when the timing's right, you know, hopefully we'll be able to strike and get it out there and, and it'll be something, you know, we won't be too old and the people will still want to hear it. <laughs> Well, you know, it, it looks to me like things are going to be opening up like this summer and uh, autumn, uh, you know, from from the shutdown. So what's the next event for you when the world does actually open up? Any performances and tours planned and you guys just waiting for the moment? We're just waiting. Atomic Punk shows are starting to come in. The, ca- the calendar is, is dates are starting to fill up from from June on. It's starting to look pretty good. Um, hopefully none of it gets canceled and it just keeps it, it's almost looking like a normal calendar. 
for what a normal year would be. So, um, you know, two weeks on one week off three weeks on one week off, you know, stuff like that. So hopefully that continues. Um, you know, unfortunately the entertainment business were probably last to come back. Yeah. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll get a good sense of whether it's, it's happening or not because everything else will be probably happening by that time. I, I would think once bars are open and people can go back into bars again without food, that that'll be a good sign that, that bands will start coming back. Well, I, well, I know one sign that things are returning to normal is I had to drive across Los Angeles uh, this past week, and wow, the, the traffic is back to normal. <laughs> we got very used to, to minimal traffic, which was the only benefit of, of the, the pandemic. So um, the other thing is just I think the our ultimate ear stuff with the in-ear monitors, it's going to go absolutely through the roof as soon as the bands start coming back because there are just so many bands waiting and waiting and waiting, and no one's buying in-ear monitors or purchasing big dollar products while they're, they're not doing anything, not touring and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to, since you mentioned, um, the in-ear monitors, yeah, tell us what ultimate ears are and how did you get involved with them? Uh, ultimate ears are the custom fit in-ear monitors that performers use on stage. Like that girl that's singing in that picture that you have on the screen right there. If you, if her blonde hair was back over her ear, you'd see the earpiece and I'm sure everyone in the world has seen singers on TV and national anthem or whatever wearing the custom fit in-ear monitors and uh, ultimate ears just happens to be one of the biggest companies in the world that produces those. And uh, fortunately I run the Los Angeles office for ultimate ears. We have a small office up in North Hollywood and I'm the only one in there and, and run the office and, and try and dominate the LA market and anyone else I can for, for uh, creating their in-ear monitors for them. And um, it's fun. It's fun to work on another aspect of the music industry where I can apply the things that I've learned, um, whether it's on the on the business side or how to use them for touring or using them on stage as a musician as well. It's kind of kind of cover all the angles. So and it really helps me a lot with customer service and, and taking care of people. And it's also really cool to see young up and coming artists that I, I would have never probably known about and having them come in the office and they're getting their first sets of in-ears because their record's coming out, they're going to be playing on Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel or, you know, starting to do those shows and they have to have in-ear monitors. So um, really, really cool. I've had, we had, in, right before the pandemic shut down, I had in, uh, Ingrid Andrus in the, in the office. She's a huge country, up and coming country artist and she was nominated on her first record for a Grammy. Um, there's another girl that's got a huge single out right now, Tate McRae. She was in the office for her sets of in-ears. And it was funny because I started seeing her name all over the place going, wow, this girl's blowing up. I need to contact her management. And then I, I put her name in my, in my Gmail search and it popped up and I was like, oh, I've already done her in-ears <laughs> or even discovering new artists, um, that I would have never heard of. Even, uh, I had Billie Eilish in the office at the time and I didn't even know who she was. I had, I had no idea who she was. And six months later, <laughs> she's the biggest thing, you know, in the world. And I'm like, God, I had no idea. I had no clue. She came in with her brother and her family. And I thought they were just, you know, getting, getting their kids some in-ears, you know, L- little come to find out, you know, who, who it was. And she was really nice. Um, so times like that are, are a lot of fun. You know, uh, the, we're at a big, huge rehearsal, uh, complex and, uh, one day just randomly walking through the door was Corey, Corey Glover from Living Color. And when I was at that time where I really wanted to be in a band, I wanted to move to LA, I was a huge Living Color fan and and went to see them in, in Seattle too, one of the first early concerts that I saw. And all of a sudden, Corey Glover walks in the door and I'm like, holy smokes, you know, I saw you 25 years ago at the, you know, Moore Theater in Seattle. Just It's just crazy. On a daily basis, you never know who you're going to meet, who you're going to run into, how it's going to shape you musically. 
manager that you might meet, you know, whatever it is. So it's, it's really cool to have that, have that job as well as performing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it completely sounds like a great job for, for a musician. And it's like, a, like you mentioned, it's a, a constant networking uh, environment. Totally. That's great. Claudio, you ever, you ever use those in-ears? Oh, sorry. Say so the old cast, custom made, they had to do a, like a, how you call it? Oh, is that right? They do, they have to make a cast of your ear? Yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna get him in soon. Get him in soon to make a make a cast of his ear. Claudio, is that a Dan Reed Network shirt? Looks like, but it's not. <laughs> okay, it looks like their font. I was like, man, if he's wearing a Dan Reed Network shirt, that's gonna be awesome. I love that band. No, this is like a, says "Have a nice day" or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, funny. Maybe it is. No idea. I just if you haven't heard of Dan Reed. The Dan Reed Network. Check them out. Great, great band from the '90s. Okay, cool. Well, well, Joe, that brings us to the end of our time today. How can people get a hold of you if they want to reach you for, you know, bookings or anything like that? Uh, they can email me, joelesterphotos at gmail.com. That's the best way to get a hold of me or find me on social media. Uh, my name on Instagram has a bunch of underscores between the, the words because there's, there's actually a couple other Joe Lesters in Los Angeles that are musicians. <laughs> there's another one that's a bass player, real nice guy. Never met him, but we're Facebook friends because we play bass and have the same name. Uh, he's in a band called Intronaut, which is really yeah. cool. Um, and then the other Joe Lester is the keyboard player for uh, uh, Silver Sun Pickups. <laughs> <laughs> so every once in a while, I get confused with those guys. I'm like, no, that's a different Joe Lester, not the same one. But um, anyway, Instagram, Joe Lester with underscores. You'll find me on there and uh, find me on Facebook too. Pretty easy. Cool. Well, once again, Joe, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. It was great talking to you. That's it for our conversation today with Joe Lester. You can keep in touch with Joe on social media and also on his website, joelesterphotos.com. Visit thimbleslide.com for the guitar slide that frees your finger. It allows you to slide and fret while wearing it. And visit rockmusicalliance.com and join the Rock Music Alliance so you can vote in the RMA Awards. For the Rock Music Alliance, I'm Cole Coleman. Be well, stay well, and join the Rock Music Alliance.